Good evening to you all. You're all very welcome. I hope you haven't been looking forward to this, because if you have, you've missed the whole point of the evening. <laughs> As you know, the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy in the Present Moment, and the subtitle is Where Were You When Your Life Was Happening? Now, of all the creatures in the universe, man is the only one concerned with time. Imagine a dog being concerned with, what time is it? Am I late? I can't wait till the summer. What day is it? I should have spent more time chasing cats. <laughs> How many days to Christmas? Do you think it would add to his happiness if he had all those considerations? Well, for ordinary man, past and future dominate. And they do not add to his happiness either. For wise man, only the present matters. He or she is not influenced by the deeds of the past or expectations of the future. They live in the now, and they are always free and always in bliss. Similarly for the child. The child cries in the moment, and he is happy in the moment. He leaves one moment and moves on fresh to the next. Having cried, there is no trace of it when happy in the next moment. With us, there's always a trace. So if we have cried an hour or two later, people can tell we have been crying. With a child, ten seconds later, you cannot tell it has been crying. But the real trace that we leave is a trace in our heart. So we carry our past. So time is only a problem for the ordinary man. But it need not be so. So let us look at time. The present is now. It has no measure. It is outside time. Just like the point in geometry has no dimensions, the moment now has no dimension, no measure. However, despite being outside time, there is no such thing as time without the present moment. Past and future only exist because of now. Things only happen in the now. Nothing ever happens in the past. And nothing can happen in the future. It can only happen now. So to enjoy what happens, we cannot be in the past or the future. If we want to enjoy what happens, we have to be in the now. Now is full of potential. It's not limited by the past. Now is total freedom and it is the only reality. The past only exists in the mind. It's a memory. It's like a photograph of an event rather than the reality of the event. From this memory, it is possible to produce current experiences of pleasantness or unpleasantness. Just like when you look at an old photograph, you can generate new sensations of pleasure or pain. The future also exists in the mind. It's not memory in this case, but imagination. 
but it is based on the past. We make statements like, I will not enjoy going to the party this year because I didn't enjoy going to it last year. If our future imagination is positive, then we are filled with hope or excitement. If our future imagination is negative, then we're filled with fear or dread. Past and future are both illusory, both creations of the mind, and both disappear in the now. Being illusory, they can never offer us full satisfaction. So, for example, if you were hungry while awake and you fall asleep and you dream of eating a fantastic meal, a seven-course meal, and in the dream you eat to your heart's satisfaction and you, in fact, turn down any offer of additional food in the dream because you're absolutely full. But when you wake up, you're hungry because dream food cannot satisfy the real hunger. And whatever the past and future offer, they cannot fully satisfy the being. When the present is not connected with, then the past and future dominate, i.e. fear, dread, hope, excitement, sentimentality, etc., etc., dominate our lives. When past and future dominate, then life rushes by. It's not fully experienced, not fully exploited, not fully enjoyed, not fully lived. It's like being in the racing express of a train. Everything is just whizzing by. One can be left with the sentence, in old age, I could have done so much more with my life. If life is to be lived, it can only be lived now. And in terms of the amount of time experiencing the now, most of us aged between 5 and 70 have probably only lived for about two years or less. So let us consider that. Where do we live time-wise? Consider how much of a song do you actually hear on the radio? You know, when one of those songs from the 60s come on the radio, Bob Dylan singing, Blowing in the Wind. And as you hear Blowing in the Wind, you pay absolute attention. But then you're off in a dream. You don't hear the rest of the song. Have you ever said to yourself, it's now 5 to 11, you say, I'm going to listen to the news in five minutes' time. I must remember to turn on the radio in five minutes' time. And when you come out of your dream, it's a quarter past 11. The next day. Think of all the journeys from A to B. Are you there for the journey? Are you not sometimes surprised that you've gone through a number of towns or villages and not registered it at all? How many full cups of coffee have you actually drunk? You take the first sip and you say, that's fantastic. The next second you're staring at an empty cup. Because you can't find any in your tie, you assume you've drunk it. <laughs> How much of the time do we spend going over past events or rehearsing future events? In fact, we live the past and the future many times over. 
If we take holidays, we actually go on the holidays about a thousand times in our mind and once in reality. In fact, because we go on the holiday 1,000 times in the mind, we're in such a state of exhaustion, we actually need the holiday by the time it turns up. One day it is Monday. The next day it is Friday. One day it was spring. Suddenly the summer is over. Birthdays seem to be coming around quicker, much quicker. In my case, I think there's a double counting going on. They're happening so fast these days. But for the child, a minute is eternity. Ask it to wait a minute. Within 10 seconds, it's tugging at you and saying, is it over yet? But us living our lives as we do, the minutes blur into hours, the hours into days, the days into weeks and the weeks into months, the months into years and even years into decades. Sometimes we wake up when we leave school. The next time, maybe when we leave university. The next time when the kids are born. The next time when they've left. The next time, perhaps, when we retire. Sometimes we can be bemused as to how we've got here. It's like a car journey. We realize where we are, but we don't know how we've got there. After retirement, there may be no more waking up, but the final going to sleep. It's like we got on a train or a bus a long, long time ago, and we've been carried along ever since semi-comatose. And we wake up periodically to note where we are, and then we just drift away again. Occasionally, we get a rude shock. Maybe it's a tragedy or a significant change in one's life, and we take stock. We say, I'm going to change my life from now on. And we make these promises to ourselves to live life differently. But enacting it often proves beyond us. Instead, it is as if we rearrange the furniture in the room of our life instead of knocking down the walls of limitation. Sometimes people think they have changed their life when they've taken up bridge or they do a soup run, or perhaps they do water colouring. We love to get out of the mind. We love to get out of time. And this is evidence because of the fact we love deep sleep, where there is no time and there is no mind. And we also love sport, because sport brings us into the present moment. But despite our love for now, we spend most of the time in the past and the future. We actually spend most of the time in our minds. Now, what causes us to leave the present moment? Well, the first thing is we are thinking addicts. We fill the space with thoughts. If we have to wait for a bus, we plan our life while we're waiting. We're in the dentist's surgery, and he's kept us waiting. We plan all sorts of things, what I'm going to do at Christmas time. So we never allow the space for the mind to come to rest. If any space does arise, we fill it with thinking, incessant thinking. We run mental videos of what I should have done in that situation, or what I will do in a future situation. 
even if all our problems were solved today with a magic wand, within three days we would have thought up a brand new set of them. And just when life is easy and the mind is beginning to come to rest, then we start practicing doing two or more things at once, just to make sure the mind is really, really busy. We make sure there is no rest from the thinking. And the only relief is deep sleep and death. The second thing that causes us to leave the present moment are unresolved issues or events. And these are all the old hurts and insults and grievances which we carry in our hearts. It's a holding on to negativity. So it can be anger or regret or guilt or grief but we hold it in our hearts. There may be an old school friend and they insulted us when we are 15, but we've never forgiven them. Every time we see them, we remember. We wait our moment for revenge. And then there's the unfinished work. It's so easy to start a job, and it's virtually impossible to finish it. I mean really finish it. How many of us hang up our clothes at the end of the day? Well, if you don't, you haven't finished the day. How many of us clean the brushes when we've painted? How many of us put the little wrapping paper around them? And a little elastic band to make sure the paper stays on the brush so that the bristles are all straight the next time. We're forced to keep moving on to the next thing. It's like a politician shaking hands with you. He's already on to the next person while he's gripping your hand. And that's the way we are. We're already on to the next event before this one is finished. The third factor which causes us to leave the present moment is idleness. And this idleness is not engaging fully in what is in front of us. So we're half listening when people are talking to us. Or we're only there partially for the driving and really absent in some other world. Living becomes mechanical and dull. We're not fully occupied by what's in front of us. We play touch and go. We're only here, as I said, for the first line of the song or the first sip of the cup of coffee. If we have long-term relationships, we master the art of nodding periodically, as if we're listening to the entire conversation. In order to get our attention, the person has to say, well, your mother died 15 seconds ago. And then we come out of it. But if there is no shock to the conversation, we're not really there bar the nodding head. It's like one of those dogs in the back window of a car. Amusing but unintelligent. <laughs> so we get into the car, you all go home this evening hopefully, and when you're selecting the car that you're going to drive home in, it will be a conscious act. You won't just pick any car outside the front door here. You'll think, that's my car. And that will be a conscious act, and most of us will drive home in a dream and the next moment of consciousness will be when we pull into the front drive. The next factor which causes us to leave the present moment 
is desire or aversion. If we did some self-examination, we would see that we are always seeking something. We're not just simply enjoying the present. We have a hungry look on our faces. Did you ever notice this when you're in an airport and you're just sitting there and you watch the people and you watch the look on their faces? Everybody is somewhere else. There may be thousands of bodies in the airport, but there are very few people in the airport. Everybody is somewhere else. We're always going somewhere and never here. And this makes us uneasy and restless. And during the week, we live for the weekend. And on the weekend, we're living for the summer. And in the summer, we're living for the holiday. And on the holiday, we can't wait for Christmas. Some of us in this room are waiting for the Christmas break. Won't it be marvelous when it comes? Well, it won't. <laughs> Our happiness becomes conditional and future instead of free and current. If we are not fully present when everything is happening, then we do not get full satisfaction. And because we don't get full satisfaction from what is happening, we then desire to repeat things over and over again. Or we lose confidence in those things, and we're always seeking new things to undertake, searching in vain for something which might yield this full satisfaction. The last factor which causes us to leave the present moment is the running commentaries in the mind. We are judging all the time and it's normally condemnatory. If we walk down Grafton Street, nobody gets past. There's a common past on everybody. His eyes are too close together. Bet you he's an accountant. Who else would wear a suit like that? We have all these small, rigid ideas, and every one of them provokes a commentary on everything. Every day, there's enough commentary in our mind to write a book. And we wonder, how come we're so exhausted at the end of a day? Now, what is the experience of life when lived in the past and the future? Well, the first thing is we are absent from our own life. We are not present for everyday living. So when we're walking from A to B, we are absent. When our wife, our husband, our child is talking to us, we are absent. When the radio is on, we're absent. We are not there to enjoy our life. And our mind is full of mind stuff. And because it is cluttered with all this mind stuff, then we don't see things properly. We may not be aware that we are drifting away from our wives, our husbands. We may not be aware that our children are growing up and will leave soon. 
We may not be aware that our business is going downhill. All because the mind is so full of mind stuff. And because it is full of this stuff, it causes reaction and not responses to the events of life. Our mind is full of passions and prejudices. And we become predictable. And because we're predictable, all our solutions for life's problems are old solutions. And there's no room for new solutions. So we have the same old arguments with our husbands, our wives, our bosses, or our children. And so for us, things remain unresolved. There is no space in the mind for new possibilities. The ruts are too deep for fundamental change. The second experience of life when it is lived in the past and the future is that fear enters our life. Because we are not present, we do not handle life well. We are always slightly out of touch. I don't know if you remember the uh, comedy series Dad's Army. When the guy used to say attention, everybody would come to attention and then about three seconds later you'd hear the click of the old guy because he was always out of time. Well, we're always out of time. And because of this, we tend to be surprised by things happening in our life. Well, we're only surprised not because they're happening quickly, but because we're not present. It's like a car coming out of a side road. Sometimes we say, it just jumped out of me. But the fact of the matter, if you'd been present, you would have seen it proceeding out of the side road for a number of minutes. All this is productive of fear in the form of unease, worry, anxiety, nervousness, stress, dread, phobia, and so on. We live in an anxiety box created by not being present. Instead of dealing with what is happening, we are trying to deal with what might happen. But you can't deal with the future because it does not exist. It has not yet formed. So there are still all possibilities. And if you try to deal with the future, you have to try and deal with many potential outcomes. So what will I say to them if the person says this? And what will I say to them if they say that? But it's not possible to truly deal with as many as 40 outcomes, perhaps. But we can always deal with the present, because in the present, there's only one thing happening. The third aspect of the experience of life, when lived in the past and the future, is that we are always trying to be or get somewhere other than where we are right now. So for us, most of life becomes mainly a means to an end. Fulfillment or happiness is always just around the corner. And if I can just give you an extremely exaggerated version of this. This is actually true in my life, or it was true, but I'm going to exaggerate it. So 
there's about four weeks to my holidays. And I start to get excited. And I think, when the holidays start, then I'm going to really enjoy myself. And so then it comes up to the week of the holidays. And I say, now when Friday arrives, when I wake up on Friday morning and I know it's the last day of work, then I'm going to really start to enjoy myself. So Friday arrives, and I think, well, actually, when I leave the office, when I actually close the door behind me, then I'm going to really start enjoying my holidays. So then I leave the office, and I think, now, when I get home, and I change into the Levi's 501 and the Hush Puppies, by God, then I'm going to really start enjoying my holidays. So then I get home, and I change into these, well, in fact, I can't fit into them anymore, so I have to <laughs> change the plan. And then I say, now, when I get the cases into the car, when I have that packing done, then I'm going to really start enjoying my holidays. And then we go off to the airport, and I think, well, when we've checked in, we've got rid of these cases that I've just packed into the car, then I'm going to really start enjoying my holiday. And then when you're on this plane, and the air is terrible, and the temperature is appalling, you think, now, once we land, once we land, then I'm going to really start enjoying my holiday. But then you find yourself in a 1956 bus that was condemned in about 1970, and it's bringing you to a hotel that's not fully complete. And you think, well, when I change into my togs, then I'm going to really start enjoying my holidays. Now, of course, when you change into your togs, you look appalling. <laughs> Absolutely appalling. And you think, well, when I get a bit of a tan, by God, am I going to really start enjoying my holidays? Anyway, with a couple of days into the holidays, you think, God, I can't wait to go back and tell everybody what a fantastic holiday I had this year. <laughs> that's the way it is. That's the exaggerated version of it, but that's what we're always doing, postponing the happiness now. We are focused on becoming or achieving and continually chasing something new, whether it be a new activity or a new car or a new home or whatever. We have an obsessive need to arrive, to attain, to be able to say, I have made it. We're excessively focused on the goal or the outcome. So we want to get fit, but we actually hate the running bit. You know the treadmill bit? We hate that bit, but we love the fit bit. We only put up with it so that I may look good. It's only pain for gain. We postpone living now. About two years ago, I was walking with a solicitor who was about 48, and I asked him how business was, and he told me it was superb and that he'd made an awful lot of money in the last 24 months. And he'd made so much money, he said to me, I'm really going to start living now. But the tragedy is that he's forgotten how to live now. So he never will live now. For us, the present moment stops having a real value in itself becomes a mere stepping stone to getting what I want, to arrive one day. And this reduces the quality of actions, because the mind is focused on the future instead of carrying out the action now. And this takes the joy out of doing. 
It reduces the enjoyment because the end is the reward. We have forgotten how to enjoy simply being. Whatever it is that we are trying to get to, have you ever considered what you would do if you actually got there? Maybe we're like a dog chasing a car. We haven't a clue what we would actually do if we actually caught up with the car. Well, even when you do catch up to some sort of imaginary future goal, you find you can never rest there. If I just may take another gym analogy, you know, you say to yourself, if I could only get up to five kilometers on this dreaded treadmill, then I would be satisfied. But the minute you get up to five kilometers, you think, what about 5.1 kilometers? Just a bit more. In fact, the only thing that will stop you is a heart attack. You will always try to push for a bit more. For us, becoming has substituted for being. Hamlet asked the question on behalf of all of mankind. He said, to be or not to be, that is the question. It wasn't the question for Hamlet. Are you going to spend all your life becoming, or are you just going to be? As was said previously, the present moment merely becomes a means to an end, and the hope for the future keeps us going, but hope denies the joy of now. We are so busy getting to the future, and all the resultant stress is caused by being here and wishing we were there. If the future appears that it would be better than now, then this means that now is less. And because now is less, we are therefore dissatisfied in the now. At some stage, we give up all of this. We suddenly realize it's not going to get any better. This is as good as it gets. Do you think we then live in the present moment for the rest of our lives? No, we don't. We live in our pleasant memories, how good it used to be. So from future to past, but never the present, where our true satisfaction lies. We are always waiting, waiting for something to happen, for the next vacation, for promotion, for the children to grow up, the summer to come, the weekend to arrive, the mortgage to clear. And waiting means that you don't want what you have and you want what you do not have. And this is the never-ending conflict in the mind between now and the future. We basically spend our whole life waiting for our life to happen. And just before we die, we realize it's been happening all the time. The next factor with regard to the experience of life when living in the past and the future is that we bring the past and the future to life. We give them life. The past is actually dead and the future has no existence. But when we attend to the past or the future, 
they become alive. And the more attention we give them, the more alive they become. When we give our attention to the past, it's like digging up a granny to play with her again. And then burying her again, but always remembering where you put her so you can dig her up again. And everything is dug up, not just granny. We dig up all our pleasant past, all our unpleasant past, all our traumas, all the regret and guilt. And we dig them up over and over again just to experience either the pleasure or the pain. And we're unable to stop. In fact, a tramp has more discrimination going through a dustbin than we have in digging up our past. Thinking never brings about the solution, but it does bring the problem to life. So we experience the pain and the pleasure again and again and again. And all of this only operates in our absence. In our presence, it all disappears, just like a dream when we wake up. Now, what is life like when we do live in the present, or when somebody lives in the present? Well, the first thing is, there will be no more problems. Just events. No worries, anxieties, or fear. Have you ever noticed that for everybody else, our problem is just an event, and vice versa? You ever notice when somebody tells you, I have a terrible problem? You think, that's not such a problem. Or somebody says to you, I got very upset about something recently. And you quietly think to yourself, why do they get so het up about things? Well, they say exactly the same about your problems. Because your problems are only events to everybody else. And when you wake up to the present moment, then your problems will become events to you. In the now, there are just situations to be met or dealt with. The second effect the second aspect of life when we live in the present is that the mind becomes still and reflective. Not active, distorting, planning and rehearsing. But the mind reveals what it knows. Then there is just pure intelligence. Knowledge arising in the moment, simply dealing with the situation perfectly. There's no internal dialogue, no doubts, no hesitation. Just responding and not reacting to life as it rises before us. And this gives us tremendous freedom. Freedom from time, freedom from the ego, freedom from thinking. One thing you notice about sport, particularly dangerous sports, life-threatening sports, is that they absolutely bring you into the present moment. Some people only experience the present moment hanging off a cliff. But you don't have to risk your life to live it. You only have to come into the present moment. The third effect of living life in the present moment 
is that the heart opens and becomes naturally happy. We experience peace and joy now. And life becomes being and not becoming. And in the present moment, the heart is free of burdens. We don't carry the past or future with us. So we become light and bright and enjoy the present. And now we don't meet just the name flower. We actually meet the flower itself. We meet the presence of the flower. In fact, we meet our own presence in the present moment. And in our own presence, there is oneness with everybody and everything. And this presence that is experienced in the now is both within and without. One way of describing this presence is the presence of God. Most people would like to meet God. Well, if you come into the present, you will meet him. In the Bible, God is only spoken of in the present. So to quote a few statements from the Bible, I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. This is what God instructed Moses. Tell them I am sent you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. It's very significant that Jesus didn't say, before Abraham was, I was. Jesus did not admit to any past or to any future. Before Abraham was, I am. The word Jehovah means I am. So I am is the name of God. And it is the name of God because it is the substance of God. And how do you find this substance? Well, again, to take a statement from the Bible, be still and know that I am God. Or to translate it differently, be present and know that I am God. Now is God's time. In your time, there is just the past and the future, so you're on your own. Meister Eckhart said, there is no greater obstacle to God and time. In the now, you can keep the company of God, i.e. the company of limitless bliss. With now, there is the experience of being. And what is this experience of being? It is the experience of presence and joy. It is the peace that passeth all understanding. And it is the fulfillment of be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. This peace or perfection is being who you are and not becoming something. And this peace and perfection and joy is uncaused. It is not dependent on environment or anything. And it is experienced only in presence. Now to make this practical, how are we to bring the mind into the present moment? Well, the first thing is that we need to connect with the eternal. And for this, we need to use the mind. And we do this by discrimination. At all times, there is the eternal and the transitory in the present moment. And if the attention is only given to the transitory, then the mind wanders off into the past and the future. 
But if the attention acknowledges the eternal, it remains in the present and enjoys the transitory. And to give you a sense of this eternal, albeit there are sounds now as I speak, underlying all those sounds is a continuous silence. If you've only heard the words tonight, you've missed the substance. The silence has been here all the time. It's by virtue of the presence of this silence that you can hear the sounds. If you were to look at this page and only see the writing, then you've really missed what's there. The writing occupies about 2% of the page. The rest of it is the underlying white. Beneath or behind all activity is stillness, which is never broken by the activity. Underneath agitation there is eternal peace. If we connect with what is eternal and always present, then we will be unmoved by the moving we will be able to rest in the activities of life. So just like the ocean, it can be stormy at the top, but it's ever peaceful underneath. So if we find the stillness, then we will find the presence. The second factor which will help to bring the mind into the present is to practice true acceptance. And this is not something where we use the mind, but where we use the heart. And with true acceptance, we embrace life. We embrace all of it. We welcome life. We say yes to life. When you wake up in the morning, do you say yes? Thank you for your answer. Well, when you were a child, you used to say yes. Resistance to the present moment is pain. It is the pain that pushes you into the past and the future. Now, it is not the present that is painful. It's your resistance to the present that is painful. It is a wall that you put up against life and life beats against it. Do not think that this should not be happening. It is happening. Do not run away into the past and future. Meet your life and experience it. When you resist, you are dealing with the becoming, that which comes and goes. When you accept, you reconnect with being, with your true self, which is consciousness, knowledge and bliss without limit. So one should accept and then act and not resist and react. Now acceptance does not change the situation, but it changes you so that you're in a position to deal with the situation. So life is not changed by acceptance, but the one who meets it is changed. And in practicing acceptance, you give your full attention to the unpleasant, 
when you fully attend to the boring, you will find them interesting. Do not escape life by dreaming of the future or reminiscing about the past. Be there for the bus journey, for the conversation, for the bowl of soup, for your life. In the present moment, you experience life. So why resist it and why keep running away from it? Now watch out for habitual negativity in the heart. It's Monday, I'm miserable. It's raining, I'm miserable. Oh no, it's him or her, and I'm miserable. Oh God, the washing up, I'm miserable. Drop all negativity and embrace the present moment. When you accept everybody and everything, you are free. You take no offense. There will be no more arguments. And you will enjoy everybody and everything. Observing the negativity, the resistance, you will see that it serves no useful purpose. It doesn't require any discipline to let go of the negativity, just observation. Because you will see it to be valueless and it's not difficult to drop the valueless. Resistance exists in the mind and existence is in being, being yourself. And the third and final factor which will help us to live in the present is to connect with the senses. When you connect with the senses, you connect with the present moment because the senses only operate in the present moment. You can't taste a past strawberry and you can't taste a future strawberry. You can only taste one now. And you can't hear a future sound and you can't hear a past sound. You can only hear what is taking place now. So when you connect with the senses, it will stop you adding to the past, or the past to the present. Miserable is added to rain to become miserable rain. Why not just experience the rain? If you experience the rain, you will simply experience wet. But you won't experience misery. So don't add irritation to a sound. You know when an alarm goes off and there's nobody there to turn it off or somebody beeps a car horn at you? Do you know the way we add irritation to the sound? But don't do it. Because what we add to the present moment is misery. The present moment only offers bliss. Connecting with the senses stops the mind games, stops the mental moving playing with that which does not exist. So practice walking from A to B without wandering off into the past and the future. Experience a whole cup of coffee. Listen to a whole song or to an entire conversation without drifting away. We need to do it with the everyday events of life. Anybody can attend when there is an emergency or extreme importance. But life is made up of little moments. And in the present, the little moments become special moments, every one of them.
when connected to the senses, then there is full attention given to the action. Then it will be carried out to its very best. Watch out for the mind on the results and not the action. Thus reducing the quality or efficiency and enjoyment of the action itself. Learn to experience and love life, not the results of life. So stop waiting for something to happen, for life to improve. Take your freedom now. Take your peace now. Take your joy now. Take your rest now. Live the rest of your life now. And that's it. Thank you very much. So, what questions would you like to ask? It seems that the problem is that we're not able to discriminate in the present moment between what is substantial and what is transitory. And in the present moment, I'm taking what's transitory to be real, and it's throwing me out of the present moment into the past or the future. So how do I discriminate? How can I connect with what is substantial in the present moment so that I can live there. All right. Well, there are two ways, perhaps, that might help with this. One is this, that the eternal and the transitory are both present. So if you're only aware of one, you're missing something. And so when you are only aware of one, when you're only aware of movement, let that be a spur to memory to say, where is the unmoving? When you're dealing with a badly behaved child, remember the substance at the same time. Don't forget the substance for the behavior. So once you realize, or once you hold in mind that the eternal and the transitory coexist, then you're unlikely to forget the eternal. So that's one thing. The second thing is that the more still your mind is, the more you become aware of the eternal. When your mind is moving, then it tends to connect with the moving. When your mind is still, it connects with the stillness and enjoys the moving. So the key is for your mind to be as still as, as is possible. And then as a little technique, whenever you're only aware of one, Remember, there, there are two aspects present, the eternal and the transitory. And that does it. The other thing that you might do, if you wanted, is whenever there is a lack of satisfaction, so if you were able to say, is there a bliss now in my life? And the answer was no, or just up to that moment it was no. It means you're missing something. Because when there is the connection with the eternal, there's always complete satisfaction. We don't use our own misery 
to help us, really. We just wallow in it. Does that make sense? Whereas we could use it as a wake-up thing. Just like if you had a pain in your stomach, it wakes you up to the fact that you need to go to a doctor. You don't just lie on the couch saying, God, isn't life terrible? It spurs you to something. But unfortunately, with our misery, it doesn't spur us to wake up. It spurs us to wallow. So no more wallowing. <laughs> yeah. Yes, anybody else? Hi Shane, I thoroughly enjoyed the lecture, it was very interesting. I just would like you to explain a little bit more about the addiction to the thinking, the why that we're so caught up all the time with this thing about the imagination. It seems to excite us at one level, but there's very little in it, it's quite empty at another level. So maybe just elaborate a little bit on that. Yes, the tragedy is that we think that the thinking will add to my life. And that's why we're addicted to it. This is why somebody becomes addicted to heroin. Nobody becomes addicted to heroin in pursuit of misery. People become addicted to heroin in pursuit of excessive pleasure or happiness. But unfortunately, the fruit is misery. So we think that if I think about what I'm going to do on my holidays, I will enjoy them more. What we have to realize is if you want to think about the future, you have to forego the present. And the present is all you have. This is where your life is. And if you practice this, if you practice always looking to the future, when the future comes into the present moment, so-called, you'll be planning some other future. I mean, sometimes I said to myself, now I'm going to really give myself a night out. I'm going to do something special. And I might make it, I'm going to go to the opera, which I would go to rarely. And I spend a lot of money and I dress up, and you know, myself and my wife, we go out to it. But I find my mind drifting. There I am in the 50-euro seats, but my mind is wondering, should I put the daffodils down now or next weekend? And I, I only sort of come alive for the special areas. Does that make sense? Because my mind has become addicted to it. The real thing to realize is that thinking offers you nothing. You only think when you don't know. So you'll find, let's say, you were learning to drive a car. Your first driving lesson, you'll find the mind was full of thinking. And that's why it was so exhausting. After going about three or four miles around in circles, you, you had to sort of retire for the weekend. Now you can drive 100 miles or 200 miles, and there's not the same level of, uh, of exhaustion. So we think when we do not know. So the key is to know. And how can you know? But when the mind falls still, you do know. And then knowledge reveals itself to you like a reflection in a mirror. It's not thought out. It presents itself to you. Often it can be a complete surprise to you. You think, gosh, I am intelligent. It's a big surprise to you. It's like if you take a witty statement. When you have been witty what you notice is that you laughed as loudly as everybody else. Why? Because you heard it for the first time yourself. And it just presents itself to you, and you enjoy it in the moment, fresh, just like whoever you're talking to does as well. And that's where real knowledge arises. But it needs the mind to be still. So really, the problem is 
just like the smoker thinks I'm not going to get cancer, or the person injecting themselves for the first time thinks I'm not going to become an addict, we really haven't lost faith in thinking. We believe it has a value. And we don't like to give up things of value. So that's really where it comes from. The other factor, perhaps, which it also works, is that desire produces thinking. And we're riddled with desires. We're always wanting something. So that wanting conjures up images in the mind. And the images are thought about. And we do all sorts of things, like we want to win the lottery. And then you say, well, would I be happy with two million euro? If you do a little quick calculation of what you'd spend it on, you think, gosh, it needs to be actually a three million euro pot. So I hope I don't win two million euro, because I'm unlikely to win a second time. So I hope I win a three million euro one. And then you start thinking, actually, how will I spend it? And then you can see yourself lying on the yacht, saying, a bit more Bacardi, please. Just bend the bottle that way. And you play with it. So desire sets up this sort of playful imagination in the mind, or it can be horrendous imagination, as you imagine yourself getting an illness or a child dying. But the mind is not a place to live in. Would you ask anybody to live in your mind? <laughs> and if you would, you're an incredibly cruel person. <laughs> and in fact, if you invited somebody, they said, look, I can give you a fortnight in my mind. They'd say, it's okay, I prefer to go to prison. <laughs> so nobody else wants to live in your mind, and in truth, you don't want to as well. One of the reasons we enjoy sleep so much is because we escape from the mind. And one of the reasons when we wake up in the morning, there's a sort of a feeling of dread, is that we know we're just about to go into the prison of the mind again. Within five seconds, it's pouring at you. You've got to do this, you've got to do that. Maybe the check won't be in the post. It's already pouring at you. Now, children don't live in the mind. That's why they're so happy. It takes them a while before they start to live in the mind. They just live in the now. And you notice this. Did you ever see a mother and she's driving her car and she's in a traffic jam? And as a child, maybe a two-year-old, standing up on the back seat. Do you think the child is in a traffic jam? As he's lepping up and down and drawing little faces on the misted windows because the mother is so angry the entire car is heated up at this stage. <laughs> he's not in a traffic jam. He's in the now. He loves it. In fact, the less the car moves, the steadier he is standing up on that back seat. But she wants to be somewhere. She wants to be somewhere other than where she is now. Does that answer or that help? Yes. Okay, very good. Yes. I'm just wondering about, like, exactly that, the kind of escapism element. Like, in some ways, does this sort of, like, running off into your imagination kind of protect you from the horror? Like, I know you said about it's not... A misery if you're living in the now. It's like that, the mother who's wanting to be somewhere other than where she is. Does the... I've kind of really lost the train of thought now. Um, well, you're basically asking, does escapism have a yeah, validity? Yeah, like it's sort of like a protective against 
the negative that is happening, yeah. especially now in a more stressful... Well, it would be like saying methadone is better than heroin. That's all. People do this. They say, well, I, I hate traffic jams or I don't like being on the bus. So when I'm on the bus, I dream of other things, pleasant things, you know, marvellous things. Well, if that was so good, you'd actually love being on a bus then. Because this is the time you get to think about all these wonderful things. <laughs> but if you ask people, they say, I still hate being on buses. So what it shows you is that it's not really satisfying. And this is the point I gave the example of dream food. If you're really hungry, if the body is truly hungry, dream food will not satisfy your hunger. The unfortunate thing about escaping off into the mind is you have to wake up at some stage. And when you wake up, there's an empty feeling. You know you've blown it. You've lost a part of your life, and you're left with nothing. So, as I said, it's like... I remember once, you know, uh, when I was a young man, or a young boy, sorry, child, dreaming of Christmas, and dreaming of a whole series of presents. And when I woke up in the morning... I still thought they would all be there, so I sort of, you know, pushed back the clothes and looked to the bottom of the bed. I couldn't believe, I couldn't even find one. Not even one. I thought one might have escaped to be there. But when you wake up, everything disappears, and you're left empty. So that's why the escapism doesn't satisfy. And the tragedy of practicing this sort of escapism is that unfortunately you drift away for the great moments of your life. You won't be there when it's all happening. In terms of living in the now, most of us die aged about two or two and a quarter. That's it. And we were given, well, ordinarily 70 or 80 years. And most of those two and a quarter years are lived in the first two years. <laughs> so without introducing time it's too late for most of you <laughs> when you live in the now it's like this let's say early one's life one is infatuated with somebody and you think this is fantastic what a high now if you find true love and somebody says to you, look, we can sort of switch it back to infatuation. You think, I haven't got the energy for that. Nobody who's ever experienced true love would ever say, I would prefer to have infatuation. Because true love really does satisfy, and infatuation just simply exhausts you. Well, when you discover the bliss of the present moment, you will never seek escapism again. It offers no attractions. None at all. That's it. Yes, anybody else? I appreciate everything you're saying. There's just one thing I can't get to grips with, and that is the thinking part. I mean, if in, in life we have to be responsible and we have to plan, and to do that you have to think, and you have to have you know your, your plan of today or the week or your goals. So where does that tie into what you're saying that thinking necessarily isn't a good thing? Well, first of all, 
You don't have to do anything. If you have to plan, you're now in a prison. You're not free. You don't have to plan tomorrow. Nobody's forcing you to plan tomorrow. Nobody's asking you to live tomorrow, today. You're only asked to live today, now. But we're full of fear, and we want to control tomorrow. We want it to work out according to my desires. And we think, if I can just plan it well enough, it will turn out according to my desires. But you can't even plan to go home tonight. You mightn't make it. <laughs> the heart might stop beating. Anything can happen. You're not in control. All planning is based on an illusion that I'm in control of my life. I've used this quote before, but there's a well-known sage, who's now dead, from India, called Nisargadatta Maharaj. And he said, the outcome of any event is determined by innumerable factors of which your efforts are merely one. Frightening, isn't it? <laughs> You're not in control. You can't make this heart beat. I can't make my wife love me. I can't make my children turn out as I want them to. I can't make anything happen. But one thing I can do is I can enjoy myself now. So that's the ultimate. Just to make it slightly more gentle, if you are going on your holidays in July, say July the 1st, next year, and the flight leaves at 7 o'clock, you can't just turn up at 6.30 on July the 1st and say, by the way, I attend the School of Philosophy. We don't believe in planning, <laughs> and I'm going on a holiday with you lot. <laughs> right? you, you can't do that. There is a current need to book the holiday now. That's not living in the future. That's meeting the current need. But packing the case in February... <laughs> <laughs> is planning in a negative sense. And you'll find we do an awful lot of this. An awful lot of this. So always meet the need. Always meet the need. But don't plan. And if you meet the need, you will simply deal with the current moment. And the current moment always presents it one at a time. What the need now is. But when you try and imagine a whole week ahead, it's like trying to swallow an apple whole. It's fundamentally nutritious, but as a whole entity, it will kill you. It's a lethal weapon, effectively. And this is the key to life, that you're not asked to live a week at a time. You're only asked to live a moment at a time. And everybody can handle a moment. And if you did that, there would be no fear, there would be no, we call it excessive planning, there would be no grief, no regrets, no nothing. Because you can always handle the moment now. But when the mind runs off and says, how will I live for the next 20 years without this or that? Well, then it's like trying to swallow the apple whole. Do you know, have you ever sort of done the, the so-called lazy man's journey? You know, where you pile five or six boxes on top of each other and say, I'm only going to go up into the attic once. In fact, you come down very quickly because the whole thing falls on you. Do you recognize that? 
that's sort of trying to condense something into a single moment. Well, it's painful. We are given knives and forks to cut up our food so we can fit it into our mouths. And we're given the moment now so that life is cut up, if you want to put it like that, into an ever-present now. And if you look at it, there's not much happening now. Right now, there's not much happening. So how could it ever burden you? There's not enough going on now for it to be a burden. So it's light. That's it. And there was this gentleman here. Shane, I'd just like to, you, you, if you would have shut up my spine when you said there was no hope for me, you know? <laughs> and uh, I kind of started, uh, I was thinking, is it enough to kind of recognize when you're overthinking and draw yourself back to the present by connecting with the senses? If the more we do that, we do, uh, are we going to clean up our act? In Absolutely. Words? Absolutely. That's, that's all I want to ask. Sometimes, when many years have passed in our life, we can think, oh my God, how can I redeem all of that? You know, I've spent maybe 21 and three quarter years drifting into the past and into the future. How can I undo that? But there's a remarkable gift that man has, that when he comes into the present moment, his entire past is redeemed. Entire past, completely redeemed. It's as if it never happened. And you notice this, that you say, I'll just make myself living in the past, and I think, God, you know, the mortgage is too high, and how will I ever pay it off, and why didn't I study harder at university? And somebody invites me to play a game of squash. What you notice when you're playing a game of squash or any other game, that you have no mortgage. While you're actually playing and hitting the ball and running around like a headless chicken, you have no mortgage. What's even more exciting is you've no wife, <laughs> no children, no nothing. You're absolutely free. You're totally free of your past and you've no future. There's just now. So never add up the past and say there's so much to undo. Man is given the gift to come into the present moment. And you can do that any time. You can do it in the last moment of his life. If he even managed it on the last moment of his life, he will go free. He will simply leave his past behind him. That's all you need to do. You can connect with the senses. You can practice acceptance, because acceptance is a wonderful thing. You just accept your life. So when it rains, you accept the rain, and when it's sunny, you accept the sun. When your car doesn't start, you accept it. That doesn't mean you just sit in it for hours, <laughs> but you accept the fact, and you deal with it. And when it starts, you also accept it. So if you practice these things that were outlined in the, in the first half, and particularly if you meditate, there is no greater technique available to man to bring him into the present moment than to meditate. It is the great cleanser of the past and the future. To give you an analogy that's been used before, we use our bodies every day, obviously. They tend to follow us around quite a bit. And because of that, we use them. And in using them, they become dirty. So if you take a shower in the morning, you'll find by the evening, there's some accumulation of dirt. And if we weren't to wash for, say, a month, it would be very evident. 
you don't need to try this, just trust me. <laughs> it will be very evident. You will have accumulated so much. Now, you also use your mind and your heart every day. So how do you wash that? How does each one of you in this room wash your mind and heart? Because it will also take on things. So it might be, as a child, a dog bites you, and you have a fear of dogs. Well, that's like a stain in your heart. So every time you see a dog, a fear arises. It has not been washed from your heart or your memory. Man needs to find a way to wash his mind and heart every day. Meditation is the all-time great vim of heart and mind. It gets all those stains, even the ones around the bend. <laughs> it can absolutely cleanse the mind and heart. You could have a trait of being quick-tempered. And you could have practiced this for many, many years so that you were habitually a quick-tempered person. The practice of meditation will cleanse your being of that trait. So, the ultimate advice is to meditate. But since one can't meditate, or one should not meditate 24 hours a day, then there are the other practices, such as acceptance or connecting with the senses. So that's it. Thank you. This lady here. Could you explain the difference, please, between accepting and putting up with? Yes. Well, the truth of the matter is when you're putting up with, you're not really putting up with. You're just silently smoldering inside. And you use it at a later date. <laughs> and ladies, in fact, are much better at this than men. <laughs> because they have better memories. So they accumulate lots of little incidences and they decide, I'll use that now. Well, so anyway... gone from my head. Just repeat the question again. The question was, what is the difference between accepting something oh, yes. and putting up? Oh yes, right, exactly. So, when you put up with something, what happens is the heart freezes. It goes into a sort of a frozen mode and will not react. That's putting up with. And it's cold. It's a cold sort of frozen state. But acceptance is totally warm, generous, and open. It has no fatalism about it. Acceptance is not walking across a road and seeing a bus bearing down on you and saying, well, it must be my destiny to go now. <laughs> right? You run as fast as your little legs can take you. But if the bus misses you, you accept it. And if it hits you, you also accept it but run as fast as your little legs will take you. When you accept, there is no trace. This is the whole point. There's no trace. There's no mark in your heart. When you put up with, you carry for future use. True philosophy or true wisdom does not create martyrs. So you don't have somebody in the kitchen sort of washing the dishes while the rest are watching United Right, saying, nobody appreciates me. <laughs> right? It's not like that. If there was acceptance in your heart, 
you'd go in and you'd pull the plug out from the telly <laughs> and you'd get them to wake up to their responsibilities in life with no anger, with absolute love. Acceptance does not prevent appropriate action. What it does do, it leads to appropriate action, but with no sting, no force, no, no punch, yeah, no venom. Is there another word you could use that has the same meaning as accepting? Well, if I could speak French, yes, I could probably give you one. English. <laughs> how, how about acceptance? <laughs> so, they, they, um, you obviously don't like that word. <laughs> True acceptance is what you need to discover, not another word. Yes, I just thought another word might help me discover it. Yes, well... I think it'd be very good if you discovered what true acceptance was. <laughs> okay. Now, this gentleman was going to ask a question. Can you talk about the notion of bliss in the present moment? Is that when I'm going to do a 20-mile drive that I know backwards, and my mind starts to wander off, that being in the present while driving the car renders this manifestation of bliss, or what is it, or how is it experienced, or how is it manifested? Yes. Well, first of all, without getting pedantic about it, it's not a notion of bliss. It's not a notion, like a concept in the mind. It is a true and full experience. The body, mind, and heart are pervaded by joy or contentment or a deep satisfaction. The reason that you're never going to enjoy that on a 20-mile journey, because a 20-mile journey doesn't happen now, there's no such thing as a 20-mile journey. That is a concept or a notion. There's no such thing as eating a meal. A meal is a concept. All you ever eat is what's in your mouth. You don't climb the stairs. You just make a step. Climbing a stairs is a concept. The experience is step by step by step. There's no experience of a meal. There's only the experience of a mouthful. When you were a younger man, did you ever walk home from the dance? Yes. <laughs> All right. Classy sort of guy, huh? After I had walked her home, because I was a good guy, and then I was walking home myself, and there might be five or seven miles to home, did you ever say, and you're pretty tired now, and you say, a step at a time. That's what you do. And that's the experience. And the experience of a step is not misery. But to try and experience five miles is misery, or can be misery. This is what we do. We condense something negative, like a 20-mile journey, and say, God, that's awful. Or we try and condense 14 days on a beach somewhere, and we get excited. But whether it's excitement or pain, we sacrifice bliss. If you say, how would you know somebody's in bliss? Well, it would radiate from their being. Just like you know when somebody's in misery. You say, what's wrong with you? But they would have a presence about themselves. They would be light and bright. 
and you would enjoy even just being with them, just being beside them. Just like as your misery radiates from you, so does your joy and your bliss. You will pick it up. So that's what it's like. Did you ever have a really, really, really excellent night's sleep? And you wake up in the morning and you just feel good. Well, multiply that by 10,000 and you're getting close. Just the experiencing. Oh, yes. This is not a no Reading books about bliss is like reading a book about water hoping it would quench your thirst. It won't. Only water quenches your thirst. And only the experience of bliss, we call it, satisfies you. Not reading books about it. It will only make you envious of others if you read about it. So instead of going for the 20-mile drive, I go driving. Exactly. You see, you might notice, say, a very young child. Now, unfortunately, they learn so quickly from their parents, they change their mind. But initially, they love to participate in everything. So if you've got a little child, if you're doing the washing up, it wants to do the washing up. If you're digging in the garden, it wants to dig in the garden. It doesn't want one of those stupid little plastic spades. It wants a real spade. But let's just take it with washing up. What the child does is it loves washing up. We love finishing the washing up. But it loves it. It loves the bubbles, the water, the plates, getting its hands wet, everything. And why? Because it experiences it. If you put your hand into bubbles, little fairy liquid bubbles, you cannot experience misery. <laughs> you also can't do it when you put your hand into the water. You can't also hold a plate and say, come on, make me miserable now. <laughs> As you look at it in sort of an egg stain. It hasn't got the capacity to do that. So where's the misery coming from? There's obviously no misery in washing up, but if you examine all the component parts, you don't find it. What you find is absolutely amazing. You're the source of the misery. <laughs> yes, anybody else? How is it, is it just as simple as we just change? Even change is not a useful word. Because to change would be like thinking, I am somebody and I need to become somebody else, which would be a change. It is really a matter of the restoration of your true self. If you've ever looked at somebody sleeping, in deep sleep, you notice how incredibly peaceful their faces are. And in fact, their faces nearly even appear to have a different shape. Do you recognize that if you look at somebody sleeping? Because all the tensions have gone. Now, you can't say they're a different person when they're asleep. In fact, they are themselves when they sleep. So all you do, all that philosophy is about and all that we've been speaking of, is simply to let go what you're not. You're not in the future. And you're not in the past. So just let it go. If I said to you, try and live in Barbados now, this second, you say, sure, that's impossible. I'm here in Dublin. Well, it's also impossible to live in the past, and it's impossible to live in the future. So why not live where you are? And that's all it is. It's a matter of coming into the present moment. And the first person you discover 
in the present moment is yourself. Your real self. And what you'll find is its nature is full of joy. But it's ever satisfied. And it really loves this entire play of this creation. You haven't been asked to live in your mind. Your mind is a tool. Let's say you bought a car. It'd be ridiculous to live in it. Nobody's asking you to live in it. You just use it when you need to get from A to B. Well, don't live in the mind. Live in yourself. And use the mind when it needs to be used. But you find we're always living in the mind. Even when we're walking from A to B, we're just thinking away. Why not just walk? Simple as that. Yes. Just listening to what you say makes me think that... One That's a pity. <laughs> Somebody living in the present would be a lot quieter. If I lived in the present, I would be a lot quieter than I am. It'd be quieter for us too. <laughs> and following on from that, sometimes if I have what I perceive as a problem, I would think about it, and other times I talk about it or discuss it, not necessarily with anybody who's going to give me an answer, but just put it yes. there and discuss it. And I'm wondering, is that equally as useless as thinking about it? No. The useful aspect of speaking about a problem is that you hear the problem. And in hearing it, you hear it for what it is. Before speech, it's exaggerated. And it's not clear. But when you speak it out, you begin to see it for what it is. And also the solution often arises. So, if the mind has, in a way, seized so that it can't solve the problem, always speak it out. If you've run out of friends to speak them out to, write it out. Just put it down on paper. And you'll find in the putting it down, it becomes absolutely clear to you. We believe that the way to solve problems is to use the mind. Whereas the way to solve problems is to still the mind. Don't activate it, bring it to rest. The analogy that's often used is that the mind is like water. And if you agitate water, there are two effects. One is the dirt in the water is disturbed. So that all the water now becomes muddy and unclear. And the second thing is that you can only see the waves. You cannot see through the water. But when the mind becomes still, or the water becomes still, let's say, then all the dirt in the water sinks to the bottom, and the water becomes clear again. And secondly, you're not confined to what's on the surface, but you can see right through to the very depths of the water. Well, when the mind becomes still, you can see right into it. And you see in the depths of it true knowledge, wisdom beyond your wildest dreams. And it rises very simply to meet the situation. It doesn't evolve, should I do this and should I do that? It's not like going into a shop and saying, will I buy the blue suit or the gray suit or the yellow suit or the red suit? The mind simply presents what is needed. Just like the witty statement. If you've ever been witty, you will find there weren't two statements presenting themselves at once. Saying, which one will I say now? 
It only presents the perfect riposte to the situation. And when the mind becomes very still, it reveals what it knows. What it knows meets the need of the moment. If the mind has become agitated and locked in a pattern of thinking, then speak it out with a friend. So, and if you happen to be playing the part of a friend, the real thing is to listen. That's all you have to do when somebody's got a problem, is listen. It is much better if they answer the situation themselves. The answer that arises in their own mind carries much, much, much more authority than anything you may ever say to them. Yes, anybody else? How do you reconcile living in the present with ambition and wanting the better job, the bigger house, the perfect holiday? How do you reconcile? You don't. <laughs> you might as well try and reconcile heroin addiction with freedom. You see, if you ask yourself, why are you ambitious for, say, the bigger house or the car or the holiday? Because you want to be happy. You think the bigger car or the promotion or the holiday will make you happier. Well, there's a much simpler thing. Just be happy now. It's much cheaper. <laughs> and you don't have to impress people and get promotion. You can just simply be happy now. So never postpone your happiness, your happiness now, for some future reward. Let's say a child came to you and they were four and a half and they were joining school for the first time or they were five. And they said to you, look, how should I approach this school thing? You say, now what you really need to do is you need to become miserable for the next 14 years. <laughs> Postpone your happiness because if you really you know, enter into a state of misery and work very, very hard, there'll be future rewards. You think, I'm not going to that school thing. I don't want it. Now, that's what we're doing. We're actually selling out. We're selling our happiness now for an imagined future happiness. So the way to do it is to be happy now and then express that happiness while on your holiday and while working and while in this house or in the bigger house. Then the happiness is your motivating force, not dissatisfaction. Most of our ambition is based on a dissatisfaction with what we have. Now what you'll notice is this, is if there is happiness, it doesn't cause you to lie in a couch in a sort of a semi-comatose state. Once there is happiness in the being, you're full of energy and you want to express it. And you naturally express it. But you never postpone it. So never postpone it. Children don't understand this initially. You know, when you say to a child, are you really excited it's your birthday next week? They just don't know what you're talking about. They're happy now. But you teach them, you say, no, you, well, you should be excited because it'd be fantastic. So they say, right, okay, now, let me get the hang of this. What you want me to do is become more happy on my birthday. So basically I have to become less happy now. So they spend 364 days in a lesser state of happiness so they can have more happiness on their birthday. It's a terrible price to pay. Why not just be happy now? And happy always. You never promote miserable people, by the way. You never do. Happiness 
is one of the greatest assets for success in a career. Everybody likes to be surrounded by happy people. So, just a way to get onto the board of directors. Just be happy and they'll be so glad that you're there. <laughs> now, this lady was going to... What happens to us from children to adults? You know, why do we change so drastically? There must be something going wrong. You know? Absolutely. There's a lot going wrong. Yeah. Well, there's two things. One is... We are educated in ignorance by our parents and by school and by society and by poor religion. All of these are basically saying the same message. They're saying to you, you're not happy as you are and you would be happier if you get this or that. So if you're a parent, never feed that message to a child. And tell them that society is lying. It doesn't know the truth. And never send them to a school that would ever tell them that. That would ever encourage them to sell their happiness now for a future reward. All children love to learn. They all love to learn at the start. Never encourage them to sacrifice the love of learning for some future points or qualifications. Maintain the love of learning. And then they will study at will. And they will learn at will. What you'll find is this, is that what you don't enjoy, you find very hard to study. So the real key is to enjoy everything. And then you learn easily. That's one thing. They're the outside influences. Now, you can rise above them, but it's pretty challenging. But the second factor is there is something within you. There is a latent ego, which has both good and bad traits in it. And it lies dormant for about two years. And then it wakens up. In the same way that puberty awakens when you're maybe 10 or 12 or 14 or whatever. Well, this ego wakens up. And you notice it around two. You get this, I want and I won't and I don't want. And that is the ego expressing itself. And the child begins to live from its desires and likes and dislikes as opposed to from truth and wisdom and all of these sorts of things. You won't be able to stop this ego awakening. It's just the way it is. But your job is to help that child to transcend the limits of the ego. And you can do that by feeding it true principles, by being a living example yourself. It's always encouraging you know, for the child if there's a living example in its company. So you do those things. Because there's one marvellous thing about a child. Of course, there's lots of marvellous things about a child. But one of the marvellous things about a child is that it's full of faith and devotion. It absolutely believes in you. So if you say the world is flat, all the other mummies in the world have got it wrong. Because my mummy says it is flat, and therefore it is flat. The second thing is that they are totally devoted to you from the very beginning. And that means they will imitate you. So if you hate washing up, They'll say, I love mummy, I'm going to turn out like her, so I hate washing up as well. If mummy or daddy is moody, well, they like to become moody, so they sort of blend in with you. Because they have faith in you, only present them with what is true. So don't tell them it is miserable rain, because that's not true. Don't tell them that work is a curse. 
and you only work so you can play subsequently, because this is not true. And then be a living example of this truth to them. And then out of devotion to you, they will imitate it. And then you'll have done a great service, not only to your child, but to the neighborhood and mankind. You will have created a free man or woman, or you will have helped the bringing about of a free man or woman. And you know, Socrates, two and a half thousand years later, the Western world is still studying his words. That's what one free man or woman can do. So, and if you have children, there's no reason why your little Fred can't be the Socrates of the, uh, <laughs> of the 21st century. And there is no reason why he can't be, or Mother Teresa, or whatever person you admire. There's absolutely no reason. The potentiality is there. And their potentiality will be expressed if they live in the present moment. Uh, this lady here. Hi, you spoke about uh, truths and parents telling their children about truth. And one of the things that just went home with me was my mother and Santa Claus. And she said, and she still says to this day, that she could never really tell us that Santa Claus was real because yes. he was not. And uh, it just stays with me. And as you spoke about that, how can a whole society tell children that Santa Claus is this thing? And then they have to wake up to reality that it's not. This parent who they believe is God and tells them everything yes. to be true, and then it's not. And where do you go from there? Well, you've just destroyed my Christmas, by the way, because... Uh, <laughs> I thought there was Santa. You've ruined it. Okay. I had to actually oh. think, were there children in the room anyway? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you've ruined it. There is a child in the room, right? So you've ruined it for me. Anyway, now, children always play games, and they imitate you. You know, you see a child waving its finger at its younger brother, and it's got exactly the same mannerisms as you. Children don't mind games. So you can get down on your sort of hunkers and sort of bark like a dog, and they love all of that. There is no harm in playing the Santa game. But make sure it is a play. Make sure there's a twinkle in your eye. Tell it as a sort of like a magic fairy story. There's nothing wrong with that. If you say it like that, and when the time comes, you tell the child, it was just a game we played. There is no disappointment in the child, and it does not lose faith in you. It realizes you were only playing a game. So there's nothing wrong with it. I'm just going to kill my mother when I go home tonight <laughs> for having lied to me. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with it. So make sure it's like that. Those sort of things don't cause any harm. But what does cause harm is being joyous at birth and miserable at death. That is a terrible thing to present a child with. Because then it will fear old age and it will fear death. I wouldn't worry about the Santa one. There's lots of other ones to work at. I mean, you could refine it. You can say to a child, there is no Santa. But what there is, is there is abundance in this creation. That God, or the Absolute, provides everything. And that man tries to remember God by being abundant himself at Christmas and being generous to everybody. And that would be a nice way for a child to experience Christmas.
<laughs> so, is, is there anything else you wanted to ask? No, I think that's very much it. Okay. All right, but well, to bring this to an end, the school did put its questions for 33 years to a man in India whom we refer to as the Shankaracharya. And in one of his answers to a question, the answer or part of the answer is recorded in a book called Good Company. And it talks about the present moment, so I thought we would finish with that. Now, he uses the word absolute. And for the word absolute, you can use consciousness or awareness or God or spirit or source or whatever you feel comfortable with. But this is what he says. The present moment is the imminent absolute. And in the present moment, he comes in his form in front of everyone. And that is the moment for everyone to appreciate the absolute. The concept of past and future is involved with worldly affairs. So when one thinks of the past, one is deviating from the absolute, which is present. And one is trying to have certain relationships with worldly things. When one is planning about the future, then one is deviating from the present absolute. You cannot bring the past to life. You cannot tailor the future as you want because both things are beyond the control of the individual. So we should bother our head least about the past and the future. With the memory of the absolute, we should try to make use of the present with all the glorious things which the absolute is here to offer in the present moment. The present is always lit because it is the presence of the absolute and the light of the absolute falls on the present. There is nothing to worry about or fear in the present. Past and future are very dark and that is where the fears are and it is only fears of some sort which drag individuals to the past or the future. It is much better and more economical for us to avail ourselves of the brilliance and the light and knowledge which are of the present and not to associate ourselves with the darkness which really belongs to the past or the future. They visit us and concern us sometimes. Whenever we wake up and find that we are traveling towards the darkness of the past or the future, Please come into the light of the day, the light of the present. So if you come into the present, you will come into the presence of yourself and you will come into the presence of God and this is where you should live. So thank you very much.